We're going to continue our series here in uh, the gospel according to Mark. There are four gospels in the New Testament. Just imagine, you know, light passing through a diamond. Four accounts, four stories uh, from real human writers, divinely inspired by God and His Spirit, telling us about who, who this Jesus is. Who is this guy? Who is this guy who claimed to be the King and the Messiah and the Savior of the world? We saw an introduction to that, Mark's own words in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. But now Jesus is going to tell us what he's all about in his own words. As he explains to the people of God, to us, the nature of this radical call to, to follow him, that he calls those who we honestly don't really expect and wouldn't ourselves probably want to call, and how in the call of Jesus there is simultaneously calling and embrace and inclusion in his kingdom and mandate and challenge and mission to be sent as, a, as servants of this king and his kingdom to the world. This week I was online and I found this thread that I found interesting I know we have a few teenagers in the room. Bless you for being here. We're so glad you're here. For the rest of us who have tried to blot out most of our teenage memories, we're glad you're here too. And the thread posed this question. If you could send a message to your 16-year-old self, what would it be? If you could give your 16-year-old self, in my case, a highly underdeveloped male brain at 16, a message, what would it be? But here's the catch. You can only use four words. Four words of wisdom and advice that you would give to your 16-year-old self. And as I read the thread, you know, it starts off pretty, pretty positive. You know, kind of some hallmarky type stuff. Live your best life now. Self-help. That kind of thing. You know, four words. Do not be afraid. You know, this too will pass. By the way, if you're encountering someone who's in real suffering, that's a great one to use on them. Oh, you're suffering? This too will pass. Find friends to keep. Apparently this person hasn't yet reached middle age. Spend time in nature. Yes, that's good advice. That's really what you would tell your 16-year-old self. Okay. You know, take the harder path. Come on, gumption. You can do it. And although a lot of the comments were pretty positive, you know, four words of encouragement, they pretty quickly, and then almost universally, got really heavy. And you just realize that the average human being like you and me is walking around with, man, a lot of, a lot of heaviness sometimes. So as John said, we don't come here to play games and get dressed up and go through religious motions, but to be honest about our need before a God who actually meets that need and cares and isn't, you know, just... An old, angry, bearded guy in the sky wagging his finger at you in shame, but actually offers help and healing and rescue and a good news. Some of the comments that stood out to me from the heavy section, I would tell my 16-year-old self, you are not alone. And you just wonder what loneliness they might have experienced. It's not your fault. And you wonder what sort of sense of blame and shame they internalized and why this one kind of hit me do not trust them 
Mm. Betrayal, perhaps. Stay home that night. And this one, I think, I don't know, this one just sort of, it exposed me because this is really our deepest human need. We were made to be in relationship with God and with one another in the garden without sin. That's where all this is going again because of, as we heard last week, the second Adam bringing us back to the new garden through the new tree, the cross. But this one really hit me. You really are wanted. You really are wanted. You really are loved. There really is hope. When the list goes on, and you wonder as you read it, what happened to these folks? What shaped their lives? What were they following? What were they believing? Who was their king and their kingdom? And why? Because when it comes to that question of who we will follow and what we'll believe, there's no neutrality on that point. We don't get to stand as, you know, disenfranchised observers above it all. We're in it. We have beliefs. We have a worldview. We have kings and kingdoms that we're trusting to become who we believe we were meant to be to have our souls satisfied. And so I ask you, what message would you send your 16-year-old self in four words? This could be a good lunchtime conversation. Lunch may not end well, I don't know, but it could be a good conversation. What would you say to your 16-year-old self? What wisdom, now that you've lived some life, what really matters at the end of the day? You know how much money you made, your car, accolades, where you went to school? And I think Mark here in this text is pleading with us to really consider four words, the four words, the only four words that ultimately matter at the end of the day. And it's all by grace, through faith, not by works, and yet here they are. The challenge is before us. How about these for four words? I will follow you. Lord, I don't know what the future is going to bring. I know there'll be ups and downs. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to eat and drink and feast and love people and love you. I'm going to play golf and basketball and ski and have fun and do all the things. But at the end of the day, this is what matters most. I will follow you. And I think it's important for us to consider this because there are many a siren song around us beckoning that we follow path X, Y, or Z. This is the way to joy. This is the way to riches. This is the way to life. And so God, in and with and through Mark, is asking us to not, you know, check our brain at the door when we go to church, but analyze and consider these things. What is the way, the truth, and the life? Mark pleads with us. Hear the proclamation of Jesus and follow him. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what you go through, this is, this is the way. You'll never be left alone. You'll never be forsaken. You'll never be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hear Jesus and follow him. I think this quote sums it up nicely. Nothing done in obedience to God will ever be done in vain. Doesn't mean it will be easy. Doesn't mean it will be pleasurable in the moment. But it will never be in vain. Don't let anyone make you feel foolish for following God. He is always the right choice. Even when the road is difficult, his way is always better. And so Jesus here 
is not only calling to these rough and tumble, blue-collar, northern Israel, Sea of Galilee, Jewish fishermen. I love that that's who he starts with. He's calling to us. I'm here. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We saw last week that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. There's all kinds of beautiful Old Testament symbolism there. Fulfillment. Jesus is authorized, sort of pre-coronated, as it were, in the presence of the Trinity. The Spirit descends as a dove. The Father is there and says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus is, is taking, he has taken on flesh, but in this sense, in his flesh, unites himself through baptism covenantally to God's people. He sets up a three-year ministry where he will, in his flesh, be the pure and spotless lamb who's slain for the sins of the world. And as John showed us last week, pretty brilliantly, I might add, if you weren't here last week, go listen to the sermon. Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's not only the new Adam, he's also the new Israel. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. He's fasting. He's tempted in every way, yet without sin. The devil comes to him to mock him, to mock God, to mock God's love and promises to him. And he responds with what? The only weapon we have, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Having been baptized, authorized, and tempted, he is now ready to begin his earthly ministry. And that's where we're at, beginning in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus gives us a, a radical call. He then asks that we would follow him as he calls the unexpected and he really shows us what our, what our mission is. And he does it in a beautiful and contextual way. He speaks to fishermen about fishing. You can almost imagine Jesus, I don't know, being out somewhere, whatever weird hobby you have. And some of y'all are real weird. So whatever it is, maybe he's on the golf course or he's doing whatever. You know, he could have used an analogy, you know, I'm going to make you, you know, golfers of men or something. I don't know. But fishermen, he speaks to fishermen about fish. And that's where we're going to go this morning. The radical call of Jesus, his calling of the unexpected, which makes me so happy for me and for you, <laughs> and that the very call of Jesus is ascending. Jesus' call is radical. The first thing that's radical about it is when it happens. You see, Mark kind of fast forwards us in time. We see this in verse 14 and 15, that it's after John, John the Baptist, has been arrested. Well, what happened here, man? Because the last time we met John, everything was going pretty good. In fact, everybody really liked John. It says that all of Jerusalem and Judea came out to see him. He's this wild hesher out in the wilderness, eating locusts, dressed in camel's hair, baptizing people with the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And at least at first, it seems people were pretty pleased with his message. But as these teachings begin to spread, all of a sudden the establishment the religious establishment in particular is not very happy with what's going on. And it's in that moment, it's in that when that Jesus says, I'm ready. John's been arrested, which verses before would have been unthinkable. This is the guy who says he's the fulfillment of the coming of the prophet Elijah from the book of Malachi. And now he's been arrested. Mark is for us creating attention. He wants us to feel, not only see, but feel how strange and new and radical and confrontational this gospel, 
message is. It's not easy. It's not easy believism. It's not meism. It's not consumerism. This is not a theater. You don't come here to be entertained. We don't walk with Jesus because, you know, it's like Aladdin's lamp. Rub him when I need it, and he gives me everything I want. And yet I will confess to you that so often, given my propensity to sin and functional idols, I do just that. Mark says, no, this is John the Baptist who got arrested for goodness sake. Jesus didn't come to bring a nice little new house religion. Nice little new sect. You know, you've got the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. Let's just add these guys. The sect called the way. Jesus comes to say, I am it. I'm it, and I'm not only it for Israel, I'm it for the whole world. This is, this is the stars in the sky that were prophesied to your father Abraham. It's me. I'm the one who's come to bring this message so that someday, and this is the craziest thing ever, 2,000 years later, there would be people worshiping the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Santa Fe, New Mexico. What does Jesus proclaim? Well, Mark tells us. He proclaims the gospel of God. Now, we love that word gospel. I will never say we overuse that word. You cannot overuse that word. But what you can do, and I'm guilty of, is neglect to continue to define it because Gospel, Greek, euangelion, just means good news. And as we said a few weeks ago, that good news can be, you know, Caesar has won a new victory. Or it can be, you know, Caligula's your new emperor. Uh, they use this word for official pronouncements and proclamations. It means good news, but it must have to it content. And I just want to, I don't know, kind of encourage us in the room who are Christians. It's easy, uh, easy for us to speak very conceptually. You know, oh, I love the gospel. Oh, I'm so thankful for grace. Yes, but what is the content of those things? We should be careful to know and also to wisely explain those things. It reminds me of the, again, the example of, of Kyle Strobel. And I know I've shared this before, but it's so good, right? He has friends come over to his house on Christmas morning. And here he's speaking about grace, the word grace, a very powerful, pregnant word. And these folks go up to the kids and say, hey, what did you get for Christmas? We got gifts. But great. What did you get? They were free. Awesome. What were they? We didn't earn them in our own righteousness. We know. We know you didn't. Your parents love you. They gave you gifts. But what were, like, what's the content of grace? It's to be loved, to be forgiven, to be made whole, to inherit the riches of Jesus, to be sanctified by God's spirit, to be adopted into his family, to have the guarantee that you're going to glory. It's all these things. Likewise, the gospel of God is the announcement. So a gospel-centered church, yeah, we want to be an announcement-centered church. We love the announcement. We want community groups that are based on the announcement. Putting it like that sort of begs the question, doesn't it? Well, what's being announced? Jesus tells us, and he gives us three things to really fill out the picture of what this radical proclamation is, this gospel of God. First, he says, the time is fulfilled. Now, you have to understand that in these days, every single faithful Jew, and they were faithful, and they were in the covenant by grace, and they were waiting on God to show up. They were waiting for the time to be fulfilled. In the final prophets of the Old Testament, those who come after the Babylonian exile and the return to Israel, in those final prophets, there is much 
ink spilled about a time is coming when, when it will all happen. When God will finally do what he has promised, when he will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. This is the beginning of the end. This is the inauguration of the kingdom. The time is fulfilled. I'm proclaiming and announcing it because I am here. The kingdom isn't just Jesus trying to set up shop on earth for 30 years and get some power and political sway and maybe knock off a few Romans. The time is fulfilled means that God has now become ready and is enacting the fullness of his promises for you and for me and for the whole world. That's why Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. The wages of sin is death. We're all lawbreakers. Remember we studied the Ten Commandments? You know, well, I haven't committed adultery. Well, have you ever lusted in your heart? Oh, okay. Then you're a lawbreaker. I don't murder people. Have you ever hated your brother? Oh, okay. Yeah, the law just undoes us. The law shows us that we have no righteousness in ourselves, that we need a Savior, that we need help. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. You are no longer going to be left to your own devices in the nature of Adam because I'm here to fulfill the covenant of grace that I began with your forefathers. Remember Abraham. They cut a covenant. God makes these huge promises to Abraham. And what does God do? Boop. Puts him to sleep. Abraham, why don't you go sleep over there? And I myself will walk through the covenant as the blazing fire pot because I'm the one who's making the promise and I'm the one who will fulfill it. The kingdom of God is at hand. You see, every single person that was saved in the Old Testament, they were saved by putting their hope and their trust in their faith in what God would do when he would finally and forever bring his kingdom to earth, recreate and make all things new, bring back the garden. Every drop of blood from every ram and goat and lamb was merely a placeholder those things were only efficacious, not because of the slaughtered animal, but because of the promises that God had made through the animal as a sign that he would keep one day when his king came to reign. And that's why another translation for the kingdom is at hand is that the kingdom has come near. You see, the whole story of God from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Israel to Moses in their wandering. They're just like us. They're this way. They're that way. God is faithful. He's a shepherd. He's bringing them back. The whole story of the people of God is that God moves toward them when they least deserve it. How different is that than us? I'm going to set my love upon you because you are very likable to me today. That's how we live. You know, if you're nice to me and you're cool, I'm going to move toward you and like you. And if you're not, then I will be fully justified in doing the opposite. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. No good news in that, because someday we'll all have to stand in judgment. And as Jesus said, however you've judged, you'll be judged. No, this is the kingdom come near. This is why Jacob had a vision of the angels descending from the ladder. Right in the ancient Near East, you only ever went up. And the higher you go, king of the hill, the more power. So only Nimrod gets to be at the top of Babel. Nobody else, not like the people. There was no, like, you know, no democracy about this. It was power and pleasure and war and blood. And all throughout God's story, we have this beautiful truth that he is coming down. 
to write us into his story. Not because we're likable or lovely or deserve anything, but because as a good king and father and promise-making promise keeper, he sets his love upon us. The kingdom is at hand. And that's what's new about this. Not only the quantity of it, that it will go to the very ends of the earth, but the quality of it, that it is God himself who is doing the work. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the holy of holies. He's all of it. Jesus says, as you hear this announcement, repent and believe. Repent means to turn, to turn and to trust. Turn from the broken wells, the empty wells, the broken cisterns. Turn from the things that don't satisfy and turn to me and trust me. And again, that doesn't mean giving up all the stuff you love to do. We talk about this a lot. This, the church is not a country club. It is a hospital. So I need you. This is like an exhortation to go out and hang out with people, love people, party with people, have fun. Go do those things. You know, don't give up the stuff you love to do, but whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Turn from, from those things being your ultimate satisfaction and turn toward Christ and then do all those things in Christ for his glory and in that find your joy. So it's not just a turn away from bad things. It's a turn to Jesus and be made whole that you might be sent out to do what God has given you to do, but to now do it with greater purpose. Turn from and to. And then to trust, repent, and believe. This is what's required. God, here's all my works. I've done enough. I've been good. Well, the Bible has some really challenging stuff to say to us, not about whether or not you've done good things, I'm sure you have, but about whether or not your goodness or your sense of your own being justified in your goodness is sufficient to bring to God in the presence of his holiness that he might bring you into his kingdom. Jesus says it's just not possible. Not that you're the worst person you could ever be, but the only way to get in is to believe and trust not your works, but the work of the Son. Jesus' call is radical. And the thing I love about this radical call is that he takes it, he takes it on the road, and he does, as Jesus often does, everything wrong. <laughs> I mean, if you're a rabbi, okay, claiming to be, you know, the king, the anointed one, Mashiach, the Messiah, sent of God, the last place you go to start your movement is the northern rim of Galilee. You just, what are you doing? You go to Jerusalem. You stand in the square. You argue in the synagogues. You make your case there. Because that's where you're going to find young, well-trained, and clean-cut Jewish boys who have studied Talmud and have Torah memorized and are in any sense worthy of being, you know, a disciple to the rabbi who claims to be the Messiah. And yet Jesus goes to this northern territory in Israel where there are a bunch of Gentiles and says, follow me. This would have been very hard for people to believe. We don't appreciate that. <laughs> I remember a time in my life where I, I didn't believe these things. Actually, thankfully, someone lured me to youth group with, you know, 
pizza, Dr. Peppers, and cute girls. God will use all kinds of things. But I remember a time where I thought this was, this was crazy. This would have been very difficult for them to believe that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, the Jewish carpenter, is now the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and, and if he's going to push back against those expectations, the deck is already stacked against him. The last place you go is the northern Galilee. But even if you were to go there, for goodness sake, man, go to Capernaum, where many of you know they discovered a beautiful uh, old synagogue, the ruins. And at the very least, go there and find yourself some disciples. You know, somebody who can maybe read or like who's well-trained in the ways of the Old Testament. So how Jesus calls is, is pretty amazing. It's very unexpected. It is very hard. It challenges us because we want glory. We want power. We want Tom Brady. God bless him. We want leaders who are tall and good-looking and strong and wise and wealthy. We want power. And right out of the gate, he is undermining all of our pretensions about what power is, that we might have our eyes opened to see power made perfect in weakness, the very nature of the kingdom. Follow me, he says to them. Can you imagine these fishermen? They've heard the stories. They know John's arrested. But they're busy, man. They got fish to catch. They got mouths to feed. And he comes around and says, follow me. I want you. I love how beautiful this is. I love the gospel of God with its content that he has come to seek and save the lost. I did not come from the righteous, but to save sinners. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but a sick. Not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Do you see how scandalous this is? I want you. No, no, no. He can't be talking to us. No, he's talking to you. I want you. But you don't know what I've done, Lord. I mean, you don't know, you don't know all the things. And I'm not trained. And I'm not sufficient. And I'm not enough. Indeed, that's all true. I will make you enough. I'll take the one thing that you know, fishing, the one thing that you're really good at, fishing, and I'll show you now what it means to become a fisher of men. I'll take everything you are and because of who I am and what I'm going to do in you and what you can never do for yourself, it will all be enough. You'll be enough. And so it's just wild that Jesus goes to these four fishermen. You can almost feel someone going like, Jesus, this, you need to go back to the HR department and get some new resumes here, man. These are not the catalytic leaders that we're looking for to start this movement. And yet by calling these ordinary, hard-working fishermen, Jesus reminds us that we don't need our own righteousness. We don't need background and training. We don't need to be super religious. That none of those things are what qualify and equip you for the work of his kingdom. The only thing that qualifies and equip you, not your power, not your pomp, but his presence, his voice, the voice of the shepherd, that we are invited by his grace through simple faith to respond to. And that's why when Jesus calls, he also sends. In fact, the very call of Jesus is a sending call. Follow me, and right out of the gate, I will make you fishers of men. Appreciate once more the absurdity of this. Do you know how many years a young Jewish boy had to study in rabbinical school before they were allowed to even apply to be the disciple of, of, of any sort of rabbi of standing? In Israel. 
That's a long time. I mean, shouldn't we go to the library for a few years, Jesus, and like read theology books or something? No. Follow me. And as you walk with me and I walk with you, as I sustain you, as I answer your questions, as I bolster your doubts, as I reveal my love to you again and again and again, as I feed you and nourish you week after week, I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll give you everything you need to share the good news with the people in your life. When Jesus calls with this radical call, when he calls to people like you and me, and by God's grace, let us see ourselves as the unexpected, he gives us new purpose. You know, I wonder sometimes, I mean, I work at a church, so it's a little different. But I wonder sometimes, like, get a little bored, church. <laughs> get a little bored, like, I've heard this one before. I've heard this one before. Oh, I know where he's going. Sometimes I feel like, and brothers, I say this, brothers and sisters, with, you know, mercy and conviction and one, one finger pointed and three pointed back, okay? But I wonder if, you know, we, we are too often those who love to eat, but do not exercise. If we eat and eat and eat and consume and feast on the word of God, but never get up, never act, never be sent, if we are passive, we are indeed doing damage to our lives with Jesus. That is not his plan for us. Perhaps that's why he uses, as an example, fishermen, patient, hardworking, calluses on their hands. Not that they are working for his love, but being called by it, the following is active. And here's the beautiful thing. We only have one thing to share. I've said this before, but um, I like to say this because I think Jesus likes to mess with us. I really do. If you were going to invent a religion, it wouldn't be this one. There are, there are better, better things you think or might think that you could invent. You know, go away and go, go meditate. Get rid of suffering. You know, or, or do a lot of good works and, and, and earn your way to God. I think Jesus messes with us here by reminding us that the only thing we have to use as a net, because there's, like, I'm sent, I'm on mission. Well, we have friends that we love. They're not projects. You can't save anybody. You can't say the right magical words to save somebody. And the only thing we have to offer, the only net, the only hook, the only bait, it's not your great life, not your ability to endure suffering, not your wisdom and, you know, cadre of theological concepts and words. Certainly not our ability to look at people and go, man, I wish you guys would clean up your life a little bit. The only net we have is the very grace of God that called us to follow him in the first place. That's it. That's the only thing that makes Jesus different at all. Simply this. You can't do it on your own. God has done it for you in his son. He unites you to it by his, by his spirit. He loves you and has brought you into his family. He's going to keep you there. And he wants you to share that good news with the people around you. You're free, fully known, and fully loved. You never have to be four words on that thread. You are really loved. No, you know because God has shown you in Jesus. Fully free, fully loved. This is the gift that we've been given and the only gift we have to give. 
And we're not 16. We can't go back and give ourselves advice. And I'll just speak for myself. Even if I gave myself advice, I wouldn't listen to it at 16. Hey, I'm future you, Greg. Be like, get out of here, old man. I'm busy. I gotta go skate. We wouldn't listen to it anyway. There's plenty we do differently. But we can respond today. We can respond to this radical call. We can consider the scandalous nature and unexpected folks that Jesus calls. And we can at least pray and ask the Lord to help us know what it means that we are sent. Because Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we can hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he calls to you and to me today, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, I just want to praise you for this text and a reminder that you have not fallen asleep at the wheel, but you have kept your promises to me and to many of my brothers and sisters here, that the kingdom is near and that that kingdom comes to me. I don't have to claw my way up, you know, the towers of Babel, money or fame or pleasure, whatever's on sale, whatever the sirens are selling to follow, to get it for myself. I can rest, I can be free, I can see striving because you've come down. Come down to turn us from that which doesn't satisfy to yourself, that we might believe and trust and then be those who are sent. Lord, we want to follow you. I will follow you. Let that be the cry of our hearts and the song of our lives and the story that we are in. And I'm so thankful, Jesus, that when we follow you, we don't just get in by grace, we stay in. We are sustained by your moving toward us and continual mercy for us, which you prove to us again and again. You prove to us at this table where you have invited us to come, even if we've had a bad week, even if we're struggling, even if we feel unworthy. No, especially if we feel unworthy, but we have faith. Even faith as small as a mustard seed, you've said, come, I will feed you. I will nourish you on my promises. I'll make you like Abraham and put you right to sleep so that you can remember that I'm the one who does it. So Lord, as we come to this table, would you do that? Would you draw us and woo us and pursue us with your redeeming love? And would you feed us here that we might be strong in body and soul so that we can be sent to share this good news with those we love in Santa Fe and the world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.